It's Preachers on Preaching, frank conversations between two preachers brought to you by the Christian Century Magazine. And now, your host, Matt Fitzgerald. I am very excited to bring you this week's conversation. It is with the Reverend Dr. Brad Braxton. Brad is a former Rhodes Scholar, tenured professor at Vanderbilt, sixth senior pastor of the Riverside Church in New York City, and currently the founding pastor of the Open Church in Baltimore, Maryland. He's teaching homiletics at the Harvard Divinity School this semester and has a breadth and wealth of experience and a perspective on ministry and preaching that is rare and unique and absolutely fascinating. We talk about a lot of things over the course of this interview, including ways in which perfectionism can get in a preacher's way and how it might be God who causes us to screw up in the pulpit now and then. We also touch on Brad's experience at Riverside and what it's been like for him to found a new church. Here he is, Reverend Dr. Brad Braxton. I've got a million things I want to ask you. In, in one of your essays that I read, Brad, you talk about being a uh, both a father to your daughter, but also a son, and you talk about being a son of the church, and particularly a son of the African-American church. When you say that, what do you mean? What kind of paternal, maternal influence did the church have on you as a kid? The influence of the church on me cannot be overestimated. My mother and father uh, were marvelous examples of Christian integrity and service and operated at the highest levels in their own callings. My father was a Baptist pastor for more than 45 years in southwestern Virginia. And I say that when you pastor Baptist and particularly Black Baptist for more than four decades, you automatically go to heaven. (laughs) So uh, my father went to uh, Life Eternal more than a decade ago, and it was my privilege to officiate his eulogy and uh, or his funeral and to preach his eulogy. And I reflect often on the quiet lessons he taught me about pastoral integrity, the craft of preaching, and what it means to be a shepherd of people's souls. My mother is a very gifted church musician and Christian educator, and I thank God that she is still with us, and she modeled as well what it means to take seriously the teaching ministry of the life of the church and the worship ministry of the life of the church. So when I say that I'm a son of the church, I mean that in some very particular ways in that my own parents modeled ministry before me in such marvelous ways. And then second, I was reared at the First Baptist Church in Salem, Virginia, a community of faithful followers of Jesus, a community where there was serious emphasis on both personal piety, but also the outward-focused ministries of improving people's lives and social justice. In fact, my father was very much a civil rights leader and actually ran for mayor in this little hamlet in the mountains of Virginia in the early 70s, in the midst of all of the racial tumult. He did it knowing that he was probably not going to win, but that it would influence or create a greater degree of influence for him as a leader in the community. So I grew up in a community that was very mission-minded 
took seriously holiness, both in terms of the private and personal dimensions of holiness and also the public and justice aspects of holiness. I want to sit with your experience as a preacher's kid for a little while. One of the things I'm learning as I speak with this diverse array of, of preachers is are the, the disproportionate, what looks like the disproportionate number of children of preachers who wind up in the pulpit. Maybe if yes. I were interviewing a bunch of dentists, I'd find the same thing. Um, did you ever have a, an experience in your own maturation as a, an adolescent or a young man or a period of, I mean, we need to right push back against our parents, push away from them. Um, were you able to do that as a teenager without pushing away from your faith, or were those things kind of all tied up together when you were in your, your teenage rebellious phase that we all go through? I was very much able to have meaningful conversations with my parents about the multiple ways in which I was sorting out who I thought God was calling me to be. So, for example, uh, in one period of my adolescent life, I really thought I was going to be an attorney. And when I shared that with my parents, there was a full embrace of that. So uh, my parents always approached it by saying, son, we cannot call you to whatever your ministry broadly confined is going to be. We can't call you into that ministry. Only God can do that. But whatever that calling is, we want you to know that we will cast our full weight behind whatever you believe God is calling you to do. So I had enormous freedom and flexibility to kind of make my way. And so there really wasn't a sense of I had to define myself over against, say, my preacher father. Rather, there was a tremendous degree of adoration for his ministry. And in fact, much of my early desire even to be an attorney had a lot to do with the ways in which I saw how the spoken word impacted people so deeply. And indeed, uh, in my own call story, I often share with seminarians how I went from the realization that I wanted to be an attorney to the realization that actually God was calling me to argue God's case. Hmm. And in so many ways, what preachers and attorneys do are quite similar. Uh, there is a, a public witnessing, as it were, and there is an important text that we wrestle with. In the case of attorneys, legal codes, the Constitution, in the case, of course, of preachers, Scripture. That's really interesting. So your parents were going to give God the power to call you wherever you were going to go, right? And then they're yes. going to bless that. They're not going to, they weren't insistent upon their being the, I don't know what, the, the, the intermediaries of the call for you. Um, that's a beautiful way of parenting. I mean, oftentimes it seems to me today, parents look at our kids, Stanley Harawas says this, we look at our kids as our own projects and then we evaluate our self-worth via how our project turns out, right? But we, yes. we don't want to accept that these children are God's children well before their hours. That's that's right. And I think in, in my case, it had to do with a very exalted notion, yet a healthy notion of, of calling, and that um, it really was, um, you know, God's prerogative to do that, and that only God could keep you in it. I remember having many conversations about professional ministry, with my father, and he would often say, both jokingly and in a very serious way, 
son, you should only do this. That is professional ministry. If you have a case of the can't help it, hmm. <laughs> if you just can't help yourself, then you must do it. If you can do anything else, I would advise you to do something else. So how far into it were you when you realized he was speaking the truth back then? (laughs) (laughs) I had a profound sense, even when he spoke that initially over me, because there were many occasions when I watched the ways in which he and my mother had to pay the cost of discipleship. I think we're about the same age, and I'm also the son of a preacher. And one thing I noticed in my church world, I'm a UCC pastor, and so is my father, is and upper Midwest congregational and German churches. But I noticed my father was all in on it. I mean, he was there 70 hours a week. We were in a small town. He had a public ministry, served on the school board, Rotarians, all that stuff, but then was deeply committed to and involved in the life of the local church. So I saw that as a model, and as a son, I suffered it too. Um, You know, his absence and his distance because of the commitment to ministry wasn't there for his family as much as he might have been. I think that was probably generationally true of a lot of men in their work back then. Anyhow, when I wound up going to seminary, we get bombarded with lessons about self-care and boundaries around church life so that my approach to ministry has been different, both because I've looked at my own children and thought, hey, I want to be there for them in ways that my dad wasn't because of the church can be so overwhelming, right? Um, But also I was trained and taught, don't Give your entire self to this. Um, in the world of the African-American church, or at least in your experience of, of the world of the African-American, African-American church, would you say that, broadly speaking, is that track? Is that true? Is that a generational thing? Is that a white church thing? Is it? Do you worry about that? In African-American churches, uh, there still are very problematic notions of understandings of the relationship between a pastor and a congregation. I certainly want to say, I think there's some wonderful elements of it that are also instructive for other traditions as well. But I think part of the challenge has to do with the deep understanding of messianic leadership, as it were, that's kind of ingrained in African-American culture, such that Uh, African-American pastors benefit at times from um, a very robust sense of their authority as oracles of the sacred in our best moments. And again, all of these things have to be kept in check because that can become overweening and can create a kind of God complex. But I think that the healthy notion that God actually does call women and men to perform important tasks of pastoral leadership. That robust notion is there, but it cuts both ways. And then there's this sense of of putting the pastor on a pedestal, not allowing the pastor's humanity to be honored and the pastor's frailty to be displayed. So it does work itself out in both ways. And um, I'm one, particularly now in this moment of founding a congregation, that is working very hard to democratize the authority uh, of the church. So, for example, I talk a lot about how pastoral care is not what the pastor does. It's what the church does. Preaching is not what the pastor does. It's what the church does. 
And one of the more difficult aspects of founding this congregation has actually been trying to democratize that. I often say I'm giving ministry away by the tons, but because of that deeply ingrained notion of the messianic leader, it's very hard sometimes for congregants, even when there is the attempt to empower them, for them to walk fully in that sense, because there are not only decades, but centuries of acculturation in this model of the messianic leader slash black pastor. And part of the reality that we're working on, for example, at the Open Church is an ecclesial model or any larger kind of communal model of mutual investment. So in some sense, based on my reading of the Christ hymn in Philippians 2, we often talk about a model where the self-emptying that was modeled by Jesus in that particular text is not simply the act of one person or one phase of a ministry, but it is actually embodied in the entire community. Said more simply, if I'm pouring out of my bucket into other buckets, but other folks are pouring out of their buckets into my buckets, there's a lot of pouring, but ain't nobody's bucket empty. Hmm. Oh, I love that. I want to talk about what you're creating. I want to talk about how you got there and what you're doing, but I'd love to go back a little bit from your experience of call to ministry rather than a call to um, to being a lawyer. Um, so you go off to college and you studied religious studies, um, and you you just reading your, your CV, one could look at, oh, this is somebody preparing for the academy. This is somebody getting ready to be a professor. Uh, was that what you were thinking at the time, or were you thinking, I want to be the most well-educated Baptist minister that I can possibly be? <laughs> I went to the University of Virginia fully aware of the power of the pulpit and knew that pastoral ministry in one way or another would, would lay claim to me. At the University of Virginia, a marvelous revelation occurred at the hands and under the tutelage of marvelous professorial mentors. Um, the Religious Studies Department at the University of Virginia is well known. And at that time in the late 80s when I was there, I had the privilege of studying with great scholars like Harry Gamble, uh, a famous New Testament scholar and Nathan Scott, uh, the great scholar of religion and literature. And I lift those two names as examples because what they demonstrated for me, which I had never really considered, was the power of the university lectern. Those scholars, for example, turned lecturing into a rhetorical art form. And that for me was when the lights came on because of the gift of rhetoric that I have been given, I realized that I could bridge both ecclesial ministry and an academic ministry through the power of the spoken word and deep, meaningful engagement with sacred text. So you became a, this is an interesting journey. You went into academia out of the church, right? Not away from the church into academia, which is often the route folks take. Absolutely. Do you feel in some ways like you've leapt into the world of Paul planting your own church? I mean, how are you going to get closer, right? 
ev in every way. So I believe I'm about to come out of this in a, in another maybe six months to a year. Well, I'll be able to really do some writing. We've we've you know established the culture in a way that I can pull aside to do more of this writing. And uh, I will be able to re-engage the Pauline tradition in some profound ways and uh, commiserate and celebrate with him in some deeper ways, having planted this marvelous community. What prompted you to be to do this? Why did you? I mean, I'm sure any number of pulpits would have welcomed you with open arms. What what made you think, no, I want to I want to start something from the ground up? It has everything to do with a deep desire to try to embody a faith community that was a broad meadow where diverse groups of people with all kinds of divergent beliefs can gather in peace and really quest after the sacred. And as we say often, and this is a creative tension in the open church, as, as we say often, if we do this right, maybe the name church may not fully encapsulate what we will become, which is to say that this project for me is not simply an ecclesial or Christocentric project. It is a religious project. And so there are these deep interreligious, religious pluralism impulses in me. And I felt that as progressive and expansive as many existing congregations were, I wasn't sure that I could experiment in this way without starting something from the ground floor. Um, and even starting something from the ground floor, there are profound tensions in trying to move beyond certain inherited orthodoxies. But it is a little easier. So to, to, be, to, to step into the ongoing traditions that are alive in the life of a local congregation, right? One has to <laughs> really submit. I mean, first you have to learn them as a pastor. <laughs> And then you have to submit yourself to them, right? Um, and oftentimes, I mean, when things work well, it's easy. You are, the preacher is, the pastor is, like, literally flowing with the stream that the congregation has been flowing in and with for a long, long time. The congregation has been that stream, right? You jump right in, it feels natural, like a duck jumping in. Um, That's right. But I think most preachers have experienced the time where it feels like, oh, uh, I didn't realize this, but... I'm I'm swimming against the stream here in this congregation. And then you have to make that hard choice, right? Well, do I, you know, how much do I change and how much do I let go of um, in order to be a, a part of this community? And that is exactly right. That's it's, hard. So if you had a vision then for what the church of the 21st century is going to be, for what the church, the open church is going to be, I understand. Um, you build that up rather than having to wrestle an existing congregation into an, a different understanding of itself. Is that, am I following you? you? You are spot on, spot on. And I will add one, one further layer of texture to this. Um, we have, my wife Lizette and I have the great joy and the great task of discipleship, of parenting this beautiful and emotionally and intellectually alive 10-year-old daughter of ours, Karis. And Chorus across the years um, has eavesdropped on these conversations we've had about God and religion and the sacred and has heard me be very strident at times with my critique about bad religion. And so as we were forming the open church, I began to kind of forecast 
seeing how much of a leader. Cars is a very self-confident little girl, and she's a lot of leadership in her. And I could fast forward to her being 16 or 20 and her saying to me with audacity, Daddy, you always criticized bad religion. Did you ever try to build a better community? Mm. So I'm trying to get ahead of that critique. And at least I think now with some real moral and spiritual heft, I can say to Karis, I did the best that I possibly could. Fail or succeed, I did try to build something that was better or what I thought a more faithful manifestation of the kingdom. Who's coming through the doors? Who's there five years in? Believe it or not, the most intriguing reality uh, is that a sizable portion of our congregation from the beginning and even now are persons who are 55 and 60 years older. So it does kind of cut against what you might think with this kind of progressive religious pluralism, challenging orthodoxy. You might think that, you know, there would be this this onslaught of millennials where, in fact, it's been the elders in the village. Um, That's been a blessing in in a couple of ways. I mean, first of all, I am a pragmatist. If you've ever tried to start something from the ground floor, you become a pragmatist very quickly. Um, often those persons do have a kind of disposable income, as it were, that makes building a community financially more plausible. So that's just one very clear reality. More importantly, however, folks who have seen the rising and setting of many sons tend to have low tolerance for nonsense. And the fact that so many Elders in the village are hanging around, are pushing this vision, are excited about it, lets me know that there might be some real substance here. So, first of all, we have that crowd. Because because their wisdom would allow them to see through BS if it were there. Is that that's right? Exact, that is exactly right. So, I, I take that. So, it's been a blessing in some very pragmatic ways and in some deep existential ways to let me know this project may be very, very important. Um, So that's really been, some of the early adopters have been folks 55 and 60 and older. Now, are these church people who who have suffered the same kind of experiences of bad religion that you were talking about earlier and are looking for an alternative? That's exactly right. There are people who are, many of them are religiously wounded and want an experience where they can meet a loving God, a warm God, a God who makes demands uh, on them, but a God of grace and acceptance, and also a God who makes intellectual demands. We, we very much are a, a teaching and a learning congregation, not in an elitist or haughty sense, but in a sense that um, God is the most intelligent spirit in the universe and that we can love God with our minds. So they appreciate the intellectual heft um, after which we're questing. You've been one of the more outspoken, most outspoken black church leaders on questions of GLBT equality and same-sex marriage. 
Has that, as you've tried to, as you've been growing a church and building a church, even in the midst of that advocacy, would you say that's been a hindrance, a blessing? How has that affected this effort? It has been a marvelous blessing in the sense that that kind of diversity and clarity of witness are what I believe it means to be a community that can bear Jesus' name. <laughs> so it's, it's precisely when you blow a clear trumpet like this and do it in a way that is inclusive of all of the sacred siblings, that that for me begins to approximate what Jesus was doing. Mm. So it's not abstract, right? The gift of this particular historical moment is, all right, here's, here's what we hang this on. Yes, that is exactly right. So I, I count it all joy, and I also say this very candidly. I am always aware that if we were not so clear, for example, on the moral and civic equality of LGBT persons, I believe our congregation, right now we have about 125 active folks. We have a much larger database of folks who've come and been a part along the journey, but we would probably have a congregation two to three times larger. So I'm very clear that in many ecclesial traditions and many locations, Baltimore certainly being one of them, there is a deep and abiding heterosexism and homophobia that in some pragmatic ways, has made it challenging to grow this community. And yet we stay the course, knowing that there are others who are on their way, whether they are heterosexual or LGBT, who, when they find out that there is actually a community of genuine diversity, that they will find home. So we are not daunted, um, even though it has been challenging, as it were, to be so clear, yet we count that clarity as a blessing. That's an amazing thing you're doing. And, and, and again, in a context where, I mean, in my world, it's practically a church growth scheme to be open and affirming in churches, you know? So yes. um, so I, I was listening to one of your sermons. I listened to several of your sermons. You're obviously a great preacher, Brad, and it was, uh, that was a real pleasure to listen to them. I, um, we, we have this uh, stereo in our kitchen where I can dial something up on my phone and it comes booming out. So you were putting, you were putting our subwoofer through its paces all week long while I did the dishes. Uh, but you said something remarkable in one of your sermons about screwing up in the pulpit. And you told a story of a, of a high profile, was that when you were at Riverside, maybe even Indeed. when you were a candidate. Yes. And you told this story, now this is you preaching at, at Open Church, but you told the story of being a perfectionist um, yes. and understanding yourself as a prince of the pulpit and knowing that you are someone, knowing yourself as someone who rises to the occasion. Um, so the higher the stakes, the better the product. And yes. you tell the story then of um, getting there and fumbling over your words. Yes. And then you go on to say, okay, so you went home and you're curled up in a fetal position and you're laying in your bed wondering why this happened and what yes. happened and that you heard or sensed God saying, I did that to you. I did that on purpose. I'm able to reach in and mess with a single neuron in your brain in order to show you that I have the power, not you, Brad Braxton. Um, Absolutely. <laughs> I stopped and I just, I, I, I paused my phone and I just marveled at that for a moment. Um, can you talk a little bit about both that experience, if you're comfortable with it, but also why that was an anecdote worth sharing in the pulpit? 
Indeed. That moment um, I reflect on often because it was my candidate sermon at the Riverside Church. And of course, that was a marvelous experience in my life. And one of the most, that is that broad experience of being the senior minister at Riverside, one of the most um, challenging and humbling experiences of my life as well. And so in that candidate sermon, of course, with all of the history around the ministers of the Riverside Church who have held forth in that pulpit, it was very important for me in my candidate sermon to both honor God and to give witness to the rhetorical and theological virtuosity of those who had come before me. So I really did try to offer my very best in that moment. And for the broad um, you know, scan of the sermon or scope of the sermon, it was working. I mean, you know, like, like a pictures on the mound, you know when your stuff is working that day. And so that day, it looked like my stuff was working, and I was grateful to God. But at the very end, as I was moving to the sermon's conclusion, there was that fumbling over some words. And it was heightened because I knew that this was being recorded, and I knew that there was some historical dimension around this with me about to be the sixth senior minister called to serve the Riverside Church. So it was at that moment that God really needed to get a hold of my perfectionism. And as I did say, that notion of, of how each of us has some idol God somewhere in our lives. And so God, in that early moment of that pastorate, needed to display once again for me the idol God of my perfectionism. And so I wanted to reflect on that with the members of the open church to remind them that all of us have feet of clay. And at the end of my Riverside pastorate, I had a marvelous moment with my predecessor and my pastor, Dr. James Forbes. And Dr. Forbes said this to me. He kind of put the other parenthesis on this. He said to me, one does not rise to be the senior minister of the Riverside Church at the age of 39 without a healthy ego. And that's good, Brad. You came to Riverside thinking that your ego had been tethered to the Holy Spirit. Now this experience at Riverside has really tethered your ego to the Holy Spirit. Mm. Most of us in this profession have run into a call to a local congregation that hasn't worked out the way we might have hoped. Um, yes. Few of us have had that covered in the New York Times. <laughs> 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 and it's interesting, at, at the time um, that you were going through this, I remember I was in my own, uh, you know, I don't know, not the same profile, that's for sure, but in my own struggle, um, coming out of a highly successful first church ministry in my life and then into one that wasn't working or I just wasn't a good fit for the congregation. And I felt like I had all the skills I needed, but it just wasn't happening, and I did not understand it. And I remember reading about you and feelings, for what it's worth, um, just the gift of that. I think there is, there was for us, for your colleagues, a gift in that experience. Um, I'm sure it must have been very painful for you. I assume it must have been. And for Riverside, yes. too. But knowing that 
this happens everywhere. This happens at the highest steeple in liberal Protestantism, and it's happening now, even as I went through it. There was healing in that for me. So I want to thank you for, for that experience. I appreciate you sharing that, Matt. Thank you. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So the, and we don't, if you don't want to get into this, we don't have to, but it was interesting. The, the press coverage of that kind of paint, and of course, you know, they're going to treat it in the most <laughs> ham, ham-handed way possible, but yes. um but the coverage led me to believe, as I read about it, that part of the reason that you weren't the right fit or they weren't the right fit for you was a Christological one, that you were coming in with a higher Christology with more sort of devotion to Jesus than the congregation was comfortable with, was historically practicing. But when I actually went and read your scholarly work, it's not like you're coming through the door with some super high Christology. In fact, you have a pretty heterodox, um, <laughs> right? Indeed, absolutely. I mean, the, you've put your finger on one of the most delicious ironies uh, of particularly the press coverage of that. So I, not to interrupt you, but I'm just, I, I so appreciate what you're saying because very few people have, have understood what that irony <laughs> that must have been bewildering to you because the um, and just for our listeners who maybe haven't been delving as deeply into your oeuvre as I have over the past couple of weeks, the story gets told. This is a liberal Protestant church that's kind of flirting with Unitarianism historically. And then they bring in this African-American Baptist preacher who is putting the cross front and center, putting Jesus front and center and the congregation recoils. End of story. So your own work. You're advocating for a spirit-centered adoptionist Christology. Precisely. <laughs> what? How do you make sense of all that? What I think is underneath this, um, and this is something I chose not to deal with. This is this is the complexity of, and not to you know start spooking people because I, I do my 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 pneumatology is pretty high now my Christology is fairly low but I take the spirit stuff pretty seriously the principalities and powers have so nimbly co-opted various racial dynamics as I said there was a racial dynamic that was at work here along with these issues of power that made this so very complicated. So for example, um, I came to Riverside as a tenured professor uh, at Vanderbilt. So part of the notion was because Vanderbilt's in Nashville and because I'm a Baptist, right? That makes me a black Southern Baptist, right? With all the lack of nuance around that, and I'm a fundamentalist. Even though you're a tenured professor at Vanderbilt, there are these things that just can't be overcome, right? Precisely. You know, and so this notion in the coverage of, of me being a fundamentalist, and again, I'm not saying that in any disparaging way, but if you, as you have done, if you listen to what I've been trying to do and read what I do, you, the fundamentalist wouldn't take me if you wrap me up, put me in a box and put a bow on my head. I mean, it's just, that's just not who I am. But the ways in which there was a complicated kind of undertone of this this black preacher, and he's talking all about Jesus, and and we know what this is about, and we we've we've put him in a box, and it was a very complicated uh, racialization that went on. And the other thing 
that I often share uh, with seminarians when I talk about this was the, as, as I love the Riverside Church, I have a profound respect for it. In fact, I'm returning uh, to preach at Riverside in June of this year. The first time uh, I will preach there on a Sunday uh, since my resignation. Dr. Butler and I have a wonderful relationship, and I'm watching with great appreciation as she leads that congregation. Um, this notion during my pastorate of out of a deep African-American prophetic tradition, trying with sensitivity yet candor to ask hard questions of kind of white liberal Christianity, which talks a certain game about at times diversity when it's really not diversity, it's simply representation because genuine diversity troubles power dynamics. And that that was the undercurrent was that in some of the pastoral leadership dimensions of what I was doing, I was asking hard questions about why certain aspects of that congregation's ministries were still so deeply anchored in European and white narratives. And that Raising was, that question got me in some trouble. And that was not what they were expecting, not what they were desiring, right? I mean, there's a nice example of you didn't jump into that river and just flow. Absolutely. I mean, so I remember asking even the search committee. In fact, I think this endeared me to the search committee. Uh, In one of those early interviews before my confirmation, you know, the search committee asked me that wonderful question. So what, what do you have? What do you have that you want to ask us? And so I shared with the search committee, since you know your worship services are online and I've been listening to your worship services. And um, for example, I listened to the Easter service that year. And I'm just curious, why is it that on the highest day in the Christian calendar, your liturgy turned so decidedly towards Europe? Mm. <laughs> what, what are you communicating in that moment? So it was those kinds of things that I thought, again, out of my robust sense of pastoral authority, I thought it was appropriate for me to ask those questions when I became the senior minister. So there were these complicated racialized notions. And one of the things I raised in this chapter that I'm writing is that the, the complication at Riverside too was the way in which sometimes the pushback against me came from black people. And so in the, in the New York media, I realized this. And I, so I decided I was never going to have this conversation with the New York times about this because for all of the heft of the times, there didn't seem to be an appreciation for the fact that um, internal internalized racism is itself still a form of racism. Of so course. the fact that, that black people are raising a critique of me does not in any way lessen the fact that we have some real racial injustice here. That's often the case. That's why often women, for example, don't support liberation efforts towards um, women's empowerment. It's because of the way in which that stuff gets so deeply internalized. And then to, and, and then to expect the New York Times to understand not only the subtlety of that dynamic to begin yes. with, which they're probably capable of, but they are not capable of understanding how that kind of thing plays out in the church. I think their, their coverage of, of the American church is abysmal. It's garbage. I hate it. I, uh, <laughs> I was talking one time to one of their religion editors. He called me for a quote about something, uh, 
uh, some, something that didn't have anything to do with me. And I asked him while I got him on the phone, I said, why do you never cover the mainline Protestant church? It probably comprises 75% of your religious readership, at least. Um, hmm. And he said to me, you never do anything interesting. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but but for you then so so our, is, is Brad is what you're saying that the that the 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 read of the of of what happened was so determined by a racialized reading that the theological content of what was going on was just lost and not seen. That's I, I think that is exactly right. Um, and then couple that with and I remember there were these kinds of thoughts around this with if if my reading of the history is right i was the youngest senior minister ever called i think mccracken was not much older than i but i think mccracken was maybe in his had maybe turned 40 or so that i was called at riverside before i turned 40. so there was this sense that was sometimes vocalized and sometimes it was implicit that um you know this cat is young enough <laughs> to actually hang around and, and implement some of this to, <laughs> he to might really change us Yes. Um, so, I mean, I think there were all of those dynamics at work, work um, and even amid the tremendous degree of, of, I felt so much love and acceptance by a large degree of the congregation. So, so much of the lamenting that occurred, that again, was not necessarily reflected in the press coverage. There was a deep lamenting um, in my family um, and in a large segment of the congregation because we felt that a tragedy had occurred that this was not what we had envisioned. And a lot of that was because many of us were falling in love with one another, that good things were happening. And yet that there was a small section of the congregation that um, had created a considerable degree of tumult. And as you read the history, this is certainly what Ernest Campbell experienced. Cause in fact, Dr. Campbell called me about three weeks into my arriving in New York and shared with me stories of his experience that made the hair stand up on the back of my neck. Mm. <laughs> Isn't and, that crazy that, how churches, if there is historical dysfunction, um, and it cuts both ways. When church, I always think about it, if a church has done something well in its past, it can do it again. But, yes. but if a church has fallen down or struggled or had some internal schism or divisiveness going on, if there's evil in the system, um, and there always is, it recurs and recurs and recurs. It's uh, it's interesting. I, I can see how coming out of that experience, and you're not drawing a neat one-to-one equation as far as I can yes. tell, but how then the opportunity to start your own congregation, right? And to, and, exactly. and to establish a culture, a congregational culture um, from the ground up. It must have felt like putting on a pair of wings. <laughs> it, it has been just that. Um, and we have soared in some wonderful ways. And yet I'll be very honest. Um, the, the challenge sometimes of congregational life, even with a fresh start, brings me to the place uh, of one of my most significant mentors. I, I had the great privilege of studying with Christopher Rowland at the University of Oxford, who's one of my dearest friends and most important intellectual interlocutors. And I remember prior to my going to Riverside, Chris and I having a conversation where he simply said, and this was 
about the kind of church writ large that as a faithful follower of Jesus and one of the world's most renowned New Testament scholars, he was no longer sure that the church at times could bear the revolutionary aims of Jesus of Nazareth. Mm. <laughs> and uh, I must say, <coughs> along my many um, experiences now with various uh, ecclesial dimensions, I would be less than honest if I didn't say, I still shake my head sometimes and say, God, this is how you, you want to save the world. One of the ways in which you want to save the world is through the church. And I say that knowing that I am part of the church. I'm not, I don't, I'm not saying this in any haughty way, but I have, even as a church planter who is uh, overseeing um, and participating in a marvelous experiment, I still have my misgivings and deep doubts. I think sometimes if you listen carefully, you can hear laughter rolling off the golden throne as God <laughs>, laughs at the absurdity of the church, you know? And, yes, and yes. I, I hear you. What your mentor said is right. Like the, both the blessing and the burden that we've been given can overwhelm right. us, right? Yes. It's a holy thing, but <laughs> Brad, oh my gosh, I could talk to you for another three hours. This is great. Um, Absolutely. God bless you, Brad. All right. Blessing. Thank you. Bye-bye. Many thanks for listening to the Christian Century's Preachers on Preaching podcast. This episode was edited by Neil Ellingson with technical assistance from Kyle Hoker and Steve Thorngate. <laughs>